Welcome to Force Points to the Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Erica Pierce to explore the latest in government cybersecurity news and trending topics. Now, let's get to the point. Hi, and welcome back to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Erica Pierce, and joined um, for, I don't know what week this is that we've been in our personal bunkers, but... <laughs> it's week eight, Erica, eight? week okay. eight on the East Coast. Hold on, that's five and three. That's week eight. My wife is going crazy. So is my son. <laughs> well, you're, you're still there, so that's a good thing. So, <laughs> well, good to see you, Eric. Good to see you, Erica. And this week, um, we have Steve Groveman, who is the Chief Technology Officer for McAfee. Hi, Steve. How you doing? Hey, Eric. I'm great. It's great to be on. And Eric, great. Great to chat with you again. Great to chat with you, Steve. Steve also is a 20-plus year Intel veteran, Intel fellow. And uh, I'll read the line from his latest book, I believe, on about the author, a self-proclaimed cybersecurity pragmatist. That, that is an apt description for Steve. <laughs> well, thank you. It's, uh, it's great to be here. So, Steve, ready to get to the point? Let's get to the point. I need your help once again. I know we're not working together, but I was on a radio show, the John Gilroy Show on Federal News Network a few, few months ago, and, and I was asked a question about quantum computing and security. And it was an unexpected question. And my response was something to the effect of, we've got a lot of problems to deal with, and quantum is going to be a problem, but I think we've got to do with deal with things like patching and cloud security and, and training and user awareness and other things first. I think you'd like to set me straight on that one, as you've done many times in the past. Yeah, you know, there, there's a few things. For, first off, one of the challenges in cybersecurity is you can't just stack rank the issues and only deal with the ones at the top. It, it's a little bit like saying, what are the most important parts of the airplane? Like the wings and the engine both have to stay on and work or bad things happen. And it's exactly the same in cybersecurity. You know, the issue with quantum computing is that when quantum computing becomes practical, it will be able to decrypt and break RSA and other public key algorithms that secure all of the communications that we've been using for the past decade. And the challenge with that is if you're an adversary, if you're a nation state, if you're a cyber criminal, you can steal encrypted data today and then wait until this becomes practical in the future and decrypt the data then. So it's, it's a problem right now. It's not a problem at some future point in time. I remember, sometimes you have these monumental moments in life. I remember exactly where I was. I remember the time of day. I remember what I was doing when I heard, steal today, decrypt tomorrow. Yeah, that, and that, that and my, right. my mind just opened up. Thank you once again. I mean, it, was, it, it blew me away, Steve. Well, it, it really reinforces the point that we need to think about our data fundamentally differently. We've always thought about how sensitive data is. But what quantum brings to the table is we now need to think about how long does data need to be kept secret for? And, and there's a wide variation, variation. If you think about things like public earnings for a, or a earnings announcement for a public company, it's very sensitive data, but it's a very short amount mm -hmm. of time because 
the time between quarter end close and public release of the data is just a few weeks. So even though that, that data is very sensitive, it's not required to be kept secret for very long. Contrast that with national secrets. You know, there's information, and I, I talked about this a little bit in my RSA keynote, there's information related to the Kennedy assassination you know, over 60 years ago that still retains redactions for national security secrets. So nation state secrets has a very long shelf life of how long we need to keep that data secret for. And that's why when we think about data, it's really along those two vectors, how sensitive the data is, but also how long does it need to be kept secret for? Erica, how did I miss that? I mean, it's so <laughs> simple and it's, and, and, and it's, you know, it's elegance, but I totally missed that. Yeah. I was going to say conceptually that just makes a lot of sense. Right. But that's not how we, you know, data really, how we look at it right now. Right. It's just that if it's a secret is a secret is a secret, it has to sort of stay in that um, sort of, you know, sensitive um, bucket, but you're right. You're absolutely right. But what Steve saying, Steve, what I think you're saying is, Anything that we encrypt today, which is the majority of material in compute these days, is potentially breakable in the future. Yeah, and, it, and, and it gets worse in that a lot of us are now moving our capabilities to the cloud, which mm -hmm. is the best place to do things. But, but if you think about how do we access the cloud, we access the cloud on a public network. It's called the Internet. And given that this data is flowing through an untrusted network, our most sensitive data is now sitting out there using encryption algorithms that can be siphoned off today. And then as, as long as you're an adversary that has patience, that can be decrypted tomorrow. And the one thing we know about nation states, they have patience. And do you think- Will you sleep better, Erica? Well, Will you sleep better well, tonight my, knowing everything is open? Well, that was, I guess that's my question, though. So, I mean, do you think you're saying we know that they do have have patience? So then how how do we then still stay in front of the adversary if we know that this, you know, they're in it for the long haul? So, so what we really need to do is move faster. Okay. So right now, NIST is in the process of selecting the next generation of public key algorithms to replace things like RSA and elliptic curve. Uh, these algorithms need to be resistant against quantum attacks, but also resistant against traditional attacks. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's really important that we get the selection of those algorithms correct. The, the challenge is it's moving really slowly. It's gonna take years for the selection of those algorithms to be finished. And then once that's done, it's going to take another few years to get worked into standards and then worked into products that are deployed with, within environment. So the call to action here as an industry is, number one, we have to move faster. We have to support groups like NIST to enable them to move more rapidly in things like algorithm selection, algorithm validation. But then we as an industry need to start working in parallel to look at how will TLS work in a post-quantum world? How will things like code signing or identity work in a post-quantum world? And then start to build the standards now so that we can move much faster. You know, one of the things that's interesting about 
breaking encryption using quantum is adversarial nations aren't necessarily going to announce when they've been successful. And, and a great example of that is look to our own history. So when the Allies cracked the Enigma in World War II, it was literally decades before they made it public that the Enigma was broken. And that, got, uh, that gave the intelligence communities the ability to continue to tap into encrypted information that other nations believed was still secure. secure. Yeah. It's crazy. So, so Steve, you, you talk about, you know, having to, having to get the standards done faster at the same time, we're going to have to productize quickly. Um, I know you're the inventor of Grobman's curve. Does that still apply in this world? It it does because the, the way to think about it is, uh, adversaries are going to focus on things that are easiest and providing the highest return on investment for their attacks. So right now, going after data that's been encrypted using traditional means is where the adversaries are going to be focused. The organizations that can move most quickly to post-quantum data protection algorithms will at first not, not generate enough volume for the adversaries to go after them and will have an inherent advantage of being able to protect their, their most critical data. Okay. And, and just for our listeners, if you aren't familiar with Grobman's curve, that's efficacy over time, correct? Yeah. A, a simple way to think about it is whenever a new defensive technology is built in the security industry, it has an advantage that it's, it's solving a known problem. And in the early days, the new defense technology works very well uh, because not only is it focused on a known problem, but also there's not enough volume of that new defense capability to make it worth the adversary's while to try to build evasion or countermeasures to work around it. But then as it gains steam, it, it essentially creates incentives for the adversary to figure out how do they work around the new defense capabilities. So it's, it's just something to always keep in mind that cybersecurity is very different from other information technologies in that moving fast is very important and there's not necessarily this notion of being a late adopter as, as providing the advantage as it does in other places. Does that make sense, Erica? No, it, it, it does. And my, my question, I guess, back to you is, you know, obviously we're not moving fast enough. <laughs> Can we ever move fast enough, right? Can we ever get in front of the adversary? Um, and then two, how do we, as we see new technologies and, um, you know, other um, innovations being um, brought to market. I mean, how do we make sure that we sort of align those with the security threats that they can, you know, they can bring? I mean, I think things like AI can bring, you know, many new innovative, many, many new innovative technologies, but I imagine that it makes the threat um, uh, footprint much larger as well. That, that, that's right. So much of our business is about triaging where we're, Uh, making sure that we're able to provide the best possible defense on the things that matter the most. But we have to recognize that the adversary is constantly changing the tools that are in their toolbox to have more lethal attacks. 
a lot of times people talk about AI being a great technology from the cyber defender perspective, I think a lot about how artificial intelligence is going to make the adversary more lethal. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you think about some of the things that AI is very good at, it's good at classification problems. So for example, doing victim selection, why attempt to attack all of the vulnerable computers in an organization when an adversary can use AI to find the ones that have the highest probability of being vulnerable? Or if, if you think about some of the benefits that AI brings around automation, we think about AI for automation from a defender's perspective, such as how do we orchestrate our defenses, but an adversary can take AI to automate things like spear phishing. So, so now you have you know, a victim conversion rate with roughly the same rate that you did when you did individually researched spear phishes but you can now execute at a much higher volume, more analogous to traditional phishing. Uh, so really, really create new levels of efficiency for the attacker. And just really getting our, our head around what this means from how do we up our defenses to defend against this. And Steve, like most technological advances in, in over history, AI can be used for good or for bad, just like nuclear power, just like air power, just like gunpowder. I mean, really, there are things that can be used for good and for bad. It's it's how do we get ahead of the bad? Or how do we control yeah, it, the bad, it, maybe? It's exactly right. And one of the things that makes it especially difficult is unlike dual use technologies in our physical world, where we can place regulations on the precursors, uh, you know, if you take nuclear as, as a good example, uh, clearly controlling nuclear materials so they can be used safely in civilian nuclear power use cases, as well as for authorized uh, military uses, is something that we put a lot of work into. In cyber, it's a lot harder because the underlying technologies are created out of thin air. It's, it's, it's digital, it's math, it's code, it's things that you know, you can download TensorFlow if you're an adversary and build a machine learning model to find the weakest victims, to automate your spear phishing, uh, to make your underlying attacks both more lethal, but also work to evade some of the new technologies that we're using in the cyber defense space in order to detect new attacks. We're speechless, I yeah. think. Erica, to you. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you, based upon this, is that what keeps you up at night, Steve, or what keeps you up at night? It does keep me up at night, partially because the adversary has such an inherent advantage. I, I think of all of us that are in the cyber defense technology industry, and if you think about when we have an innovative idea, mm -hmm. you know, we come up with an idea, it takes some amount of time to get it onto a roadmap to get it developed by engineering, to get it into product, to go through a procurement cycle, and then to get it deployed in customer environments. Contrast that with what an adversary does. An adversary comes up with a new concept for an attack, and the next day it's coded and it's executed. And they get to use their victims as their laboratory to make the lethality and the effectiveness more effective. So, so there's an inherent 
asymmetry between what the attacker and what the defender has at their disposal. Yeah. And they can try as much as they want. They only have to get right once to get in the door. Yeah. It's constant iteration and, and it's very, very low cost. It's low cost and they don't have all the barriers that we have in the product space. They don't have to go through regulatory. They don't have to go through certifications and uh, have everything signed off that adds a lot of time. So their ability to have a more rapid innovation cycle play, plays very much to their benefit. So, so Steve, my question, Eric, always asked, always asked this question, and what do we do or how do we change that? How do we, I mean, we don't have the ability to your point to, you know, innovate as fast because of some of the, the red tape, the regulations, and just, you know, the approvals and all of the things that, that have to be done. So how do we go faster, but <laughs> under these circumstances? So, so for one, we need to look at technologies that are platforms that we can retool the various detection or defense technologies at a more rapid pace than deploying new products. So for example, platforms that can take new models, that can take new threat intelligence, that can combine uh, non-deterministic solutions with things that we know and understand like threat intelligence, Putting all of those together doesn't necessarily get us ahead of the adversary, but it does get us a lot closer to the timeline that they're operating on. Steve, doesn't that speak to scale in cybersecurity, though? I mean, right now we've got 4,000, 5,000, whatever it is, vendors out there with their products. Doesn't that speak, and I know you and I have spoken a little bit about this in the past, to scale, though, the ability to bring on new capabilities or features rapidly while avoiding, in some cases, or short-circuiting shortcutting, I should say, the acquisition process and some of the other components? It, it absolutely does. And, and if you think about uh, the impact of operational complexity, operational complexity creates overhead, which is then cost that could be put into better defense. So, so I think of it as an opportunity cost. So whenever you have operational complexity, you have your operators dealing with how do they manage that complexity, which could otherwise be spent on defending their organization. So consolidation, and whether that means various companies start to consolidate through M&A, or whether we move to more open and integrated solutions where different vendors can interact and interoperate more effectively, those will simplify the ability for cyber defenders to use technology to defend their world. So Steve, I'd like to just pivot for just a, a second, um, well, before we end, and ask you a question about, um, you know, what's going on right now with uh, COVID and just what we're projecting may be a very different election process. Um, and so I know you've recently written about the fact that paper uh, might still be the safest way. Um, it's the, the safest type of technology. Um, talk to us a, a little bit about that. I mean, I think we're, st- we're still on a, you know, day to day in terms of, you know, what the future will look like, but what are your thoughts as far as how do we um, look at the, how, sh- how should we approach a, a digital election process? Sure. So, you know, one of the things that's critical in an election is for both the election to be secure, but also to have all of the citizens 
trust the election process. And that means that the underlying technology used to conduct the election is something that every voter must understand and trust. And part of the challenge that we have in using uh, a digital set of technologies to conduct an election is it's, it's only people like us that understand uh, some of the details on what would make that either secure or not secure. Uh, also, part of the challenge is that if you look at how an election is conducted, the only thing that a voter sees is the aggregated result. So at the end of the day, uh, the number of votes for the winner and the loser, they don't actually have a way to track their individual vote. So if you use a digital election process, when a voter casts a vote, let's say on their PC, the vote that was actually recorded on the back end might be quite different. And that, that sets us up for significant interference by foreign actors, really from anywhere in the world, using well-proven techniques that we've seen in cybercrime and other cyber attacks where you're able to present one thing to the person sitting in front of a computer, but actually do something very different on the back end. The, the difference here is if you change a transaction for a bank account, at some point in time, you're going to see that and you're going to say, hey, I, I, didn't, I didn't make this uh, transaction. In an election, you'll have no way of knowing that your vote was tampered with. Uh, the, the other thing that's unique about paper is given the nature of the U.S. mail system, it, it's just inherently difficult to tamper with a paper-based election at scale. So, so in order to manipulate an election, an adversary needs to do things at scale. And the scale part of it is really important to focus on. While it's true they could steal a few paper ballots here and there, you know, we saw the North Carolina 9, 9th District uh, congressional race have uh, fraud related to mail-in ballots. But to do something at scale, especially from remotely, such as another country, would be incredibly difficult with a paper election. Where, where we watch like Facebook and we see nation states impacting, you know, belief systems and, and creating protests and rallies because they can do it at scale from afar, very low cost and easy. It, it's also a question of practically, could we train the general public and local election officials to have the cyber skills required to conduct an election safely and securely. You know, if, if you think about the ability to even secure the basic elements of our election process, such as getting information about where, when, and how to vote, we, we see challenges there. We, we did a study recently where we found over half the domains were neither using encryption, so they weren't using HTTPS, and weren't using top-level uh, government domains. So the sites voters were going to to find out where to vote had things like .com, .us, .net. I actually stumbled on this myself. I recently moved to Texas, and when I went to vote in the last election cycle and looked up my, my website for my local election bureau, it was votedenton.com. And, and that's the type of thing that we need to change first before we even consider moving 
to a more broad digital election process. And I think from absentee ballots, we do have the mail process down pretty pretty effectively. We just need to scale it out. Yeah, and I it's been proven that some states have every single voter vote by mail, uh, and and it's not a partisan uh, area. You have states like Utah and states like uh, Washington and Oregon both using 100% vote by mail. There's currently five states that are completely vote by mail. So we've proven that it does work. Uh, There's not significant voter fraud and it's inherently difficult to manipulate at scale. And in a year where we don't really know what the world's gonna look like from a public health perspective in November, providing options for every American to exercise their right to vote is incredibly important. Well, that's news to me. I did not realize that. That's a, that's a good fun fact for uh, trivia. Thanks, Steve, that there are states that have 100% vote by, vote by mail. Steve, Steve, with COVID-19, I want to pivot a little bit here. Uh, we've seen a lot more work from home. What do you worry about? Like, what, what are the things that we really need to think about as a, as a global world, as an economy, the economies around the globe? I mean, what do you worry about the most? So, so one of the things that we see as we've now moved a large portion of our workforce to working from home is we've seen a lot of workers become an extension of their IT and security departments. So your home infrastructure is now part of your corporate or your organizational infrastructure. So you need to make sure that everything in your house that's part of that infrastructure is up to date. Now, we've seen vulnerabilities in consumer routers uh, that they can be taken over from the internet. So you need to make sure that you're up to date on firmware. Some companies and some organizations uh, were using desktops in the office. So they've relied on users using their home machines, meaning that you know now those mm-hmm. home machines need to be secured from various types of cyber attacks. We've even seen issues with people now sharing their company or organization laptop with other members of their family like their because kids. it's the best computer. Yeah, like, like their kids. So, you know, you've got your kid who's uh, taking classes from home and, you know, they need to perform some task and your work computer is the best machine you probably don't want to hand your your work laptop, you know, to your 14 year old kid and have them go off in the room to, you know, do their assignment. And then, you know, when they're, they're taking a break, they're surfing the internet to all sorts of places that teenagers do. Erica, your refrigerator was watching you. Now it's watching your whole company. (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. It's, 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 it's definitely interesting. I personally have become my family, um, uh, it help desk. So, Did you ditch I, I the Nigerian prince? <laughs> yes, yes. I told my okay. grandmother, just say no to all of those emails. But no, awesome. it, is, it is true. I mean, I do think our, our, our home networks are now, you know, the <laughs> critical networks. So it's, it's a good point. Steve, your, your latest book, I think, is The Second Economy, which, which I think is the foundational book for cybersecurity, like fundamental understanding the, of, of the industry. I have yet to find a better a, a better read. It, it's it's definitely a, uh, a detailed read, but it's they're, they're great examples. I love it. What did you get wrong? What what do you wish you would have put in there? 
You know, the one thing that I, I think would be a great addition is something that's going on right now. The structure of the book is written where we look at how the physical and digital world are similar and different. You know, so in the physical world, we have ransom. In the digital world, we have ransomware. And, you know, clearly there are differences. If, if you look at our latest global health issue uh, as being a global pandemic, uh, one of the things that strikes me is the human inability to accurately assess risk. So if you think about how likely a global health pandemic is in any given decade or over any 20-year period, it's actually not that unlikely an event. But yet we, we seem to be very ill-prepared for it from a global perspective. I, I think the cyber equivalent is very similar. Uh, you know, are we really prepared for a cyber pandemic? And are we thinking about the things that would set us up for a cyber pandemic? And how does that mirror some of the things in the physical world? I, I think a lot about this current global health crisis is really the combination of a transmissible disease that is both highly transmissible and highly lethal. And, you know, we've, we've clearly seen examples of very transmissible or very lethal in the past, but it's, it's combining these two together, which has made uh, COVID-19 such a strong, impactful disease that, that's impacting the entire world. I think in cybersecurity, it's exactly the same thing, whereas we've seen highly transmissible uh, sorts of cyber events, whether it's WannaCry from a few years ago, you know, we've seen highly lethal activity uh, like the Sony picture uh, or our OPM breach. You know, those were very high impact, but they're also very small in scale. Right. Uh, it's it's really understanding what needs to happen for things to align that you end up with something that has tremendous scale or transmissibility, but also a very high level of lethality. And that's the equation that I worry about uh, that, that we really need to give some more thought to, to, to defend against the cyber pandemic. That's the next book. That's what I was going to say. Cyber <laughs> yeah. pandemic, start preparing now. You have plenty of content <laughs> for the next one. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Steve. We really appreciate your time today and, and your insight. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I, I really enjoyed being here with you guys. Steve, I miss you. I, I, I love the way you think. Thank you for enlightening us and our audience. Thanks so much, Eric. Yes, and, and thanks to all the listeners who continue to join us every week. Please continue to subscribe, share with a friend, a colleague, and to let us know what you want us to talk about next on To The Point Cybersecurity. Thanks, and until next week, we'll see you then. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Google Play Store 